Millennials are achieving freedom with new definitions of success. Our careers, relationships, education, family, even our politics look nothing like our parents. We're adopting what works and throwing out the rest. We are tired, but not worn, in our quest to get there. We Should Be Sleeping explores the things worth losing sleep over. Each week, we discuss the news and topics that keep us awake. Then, our guests share the intentional ways they've done it differently to achieve a new brand of success that's authentic, unconventional, and definitive of our generation. Not ready for bed? Neither are we. I'm Douglas Bonaparte. I'm Heather Bonaparte. Welcome to We Should Be Sleeping. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to We Should Be Sleeping. Hey, Heather. Hi. So, it's now the week following the insurrection on Capitol Hill which is something that I don't think anyone will ever forget for the rest of their lives. Nor should you, nor should you. And, you know, as exhausting as it is, and I'm, and I'm sure many of our listeners have been glued to the news the same way that we have been and glued to their phones and the constant barrage of information about this, about the the moments leading up to what happened during the certification at the Capitol last week. And you know what's interesting? We had almost spoken about this yeah. on last week's episode. But we figured everyone was just kind of tired of everything having to do with politics. We covered it in many series and even earlier in the season. We, we were just done. So, so leading up to the certification, we thought, do we have a discussion about the, the 12 or so state representatives that were planning to object to certifying the results. And, and, and a handful of senators, too. And, the, and were kind of fanning the flames of these conspiracy theories that there were some sort of irregularities and fraud with the election. And, you know, I just said, let's not do it. We're all tired and we've all, you know, let's not. But now we have to. Right. Now we have to. Yeah. What's crazy is we were like, you know, let's just get, get these 20 or however many days over and move on. And we were stopped from doing that. So now we're going to talk about it. You can't move on. Nope. And we shouldn't move on. Because here's the thing. Now there, now we've got people calling for unity, and we've got people trying to gloss over what happened. That was terrorism. We just experienced a major act of terrorism. Yeah, it's still surreal. It, it's very surreal. My biggest hope is that it broke whatever spell, you know, was cast among amongst those that thought you know, Trumpism had really anything good about it. Or or any merit to any of the lies that have been spewed. That's the thing, because this really isn't, and, and I've been saying this for a long time, this isn't about politics anymore. This isn't politics. This isn't a world we live in where we're debating the merits of conservative versus liberal ideals on issues that affect us on a daily basis. This is not, these are lies this is dangerous. And if you didn't believe it, then you really should now. And here's my big thing and the reason that we're even talking about it now. We can't forget what happened. We cannot be in a position where we now say, okay, let's just all come together and we'll find a way and light prevails and, and blah, blah, blah. Honestly, no. We cannot yeah. forget the people and the state representatives that caused this to happen. Caused it. The images of people wearing... Camp Auschwitz sweaters and six million not being enough clothing should forever be etched in your mind and be the thing that you associate this with just evil. That's that's what it is. That's what it is. And to that point, that stood out to us personally because we're Jewish. 
Right. Grandpa, my grandfather, fought Nazis in World War II straight up and put his life on the line so we would never be able to see this again. And all we've seen since then is that. And he's rolling over in his grave. I take it very seriously. Everybody involved deserves to have consequences for these actions. We cannot get to, well, okay, it's the 20th inaugurations here. Let's move past it. Someone had said, let's turn the page. And I thought that was pretty disgusting. It's one thing to say that there's practical difficulties to find every single person that was there. And maybe, you know, maybe one could even argue that not everybody that was there this is just, I don't agree with this. Maybe somebody would argue not everybody there really had those intentions. They didn't think it was going to escalate to that level. They weren't playing, you know, they were there to protest peacefully and blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking even about them. I'm talking about these state representatives that fanned flames for their own political purpose to allow this to happen. I will not allow them to turn the page. I will not forget their names and nor should you, nor should anybody. And you know, when people say, oh, that's what voting is for, yeah, you you get to cast your ballot, but again, there needs to be consequences that aren't just signaled at the polls. And I think we're going to see that over the, the following weeks and months. This is the crescendo of more than four years of hateful rhetoric that has been swelling and swelling and swelling. And for people like me, who spent 2016 election night crying in my bed saying this is worse than a lot of people realize it's going to be. And I, you know, we could have all hoped that I would have been wrong or that people would have been wrong who are really worried about that. When I looked at Trump from day one, I saw evil. This isn't about politics. It's not. And I'm guilty of for, I guess, from that day, from election day 2016 up until about Charlottesville I'm I would say I'm guilty of thinking that you know how how bad could this be you know such a privileged thing for someone like me to say um and there you go like it it actually I drew the line at Charlottesville when you actually had Nazis marching and now you see them you know throwing an insurrection what about everything we saw over the summer, which we spoke about in our miniseries? I mean, I'm talking about from one everything in between. How about the disappointment and the pain from everyone who is a supporter of BLM and saw what happened over the summer versus the doors being opened to the Capitol this week? Again, it's it's people just, would have been killed and yeah. shot. Let's be real. You've heard that over and over and over again on the news now, and it just needs to continue to seep into your minds, our minds, everyone's minds about what you've witnessed, why it's evil, why it's wrong, why it should be purged, because it's going to be in the history book. And I hope my kids, when they're in a history class, whether that's in high school or college, they understand just how wrong what had happened is and the parallels to some of the most atrocious moments in world history that you could possibly imagine. If you're listening to this, please don't let it ever escape your mind because we can do a lot better than this. We can do a lot better than this. And I think that if there is one lesson to take from all of this, it's that we can't, as Americans, 
take for granted that democracy is very fragile, especially now, almost more than ever, with how easy it is for misinformation to be spread and to be believed, and that our democracy is a gift. Yep. And it is a treasure. You have to care now. And and you may not want to hear, you may have not even wanted to listen to eight, nine more minutes of just another person telling you this, but we cannot forget. And I don't mind being another voice in your ear telling you that. You wanted to bring some levity to the situation before we brought on our guest, because arguably this is very dark and very serious stuff. What What did you have? Oh, I was going to talk about how you hide in your car eating McDonald's. <laughs> the levity of this week was that <laughs> Doug, ouch! After watching the news and 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 being stressed, depressed. Doug stress ate McDonald's in his car. I think he had like three Big Macs. So Mc- some some, uh, <laughs> some nugs. I'm in danger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we all we all cope differently. You know, I may have shed some tears, and I'm pretty sure that that Doug just like said he was going for a drive, but actually ended up in the McDonald's parking lot. Yeah. So when I go for fast food, I go pretty hard. And I walked in the house with what appeared to be just the what what was left. It of was the, like an empty fry bucket. <laughs> yeah, it was what was left of the fries. And she saw me working on some chicken McNuggets. And she knew right away. She's like, what else did you have? And I instantly lied to her. I said, nope, just 10 nuggets and some fries but today. But the shame, the shame read on your face it, like a newspaper. Well, that shame eventually went to my stomach as I abandoned five of those nugs because I did pound two cheeseburgers on mm-hmm. the ride home, and it just got to me. I think the stress, my stomach was in knots. That wasn't what I should have done. But McDonald's is the best restaurant in America. <laughs> <laughs> he will stand by that. He Listen, will stand by that. Yeah, I'll do it all. McDonald's, oh Taco goodness. Bell, you name it from time to time. You just got to do it. You know what? Everything in moderation, Heather. There you go. (laughs) A little bit of levity on a really hard week. All right. Well, I can't think of a better time now than to bring on our guest, Maria Palacio. I couldn't be any more excited for today's guest. Heather's got her work cut out for her because today is about one of my favorite things in life, coffee. It brings me great pleasure to welcome Maria Palacio to the show. Maria is a fifth-generation Colombian coffee farmer, but above all else, she is such an impressive entrepreneur. She recently made Inc.'s 100 female founders list in 2020 for her company, Progeny Coffee, which has disrupted the Colombian coffee supply chain. Maria's story and journey is flat-out amazing, from watching her parents lose their coffee farm to going toe-to-toe with Silicon Valley venture capitalists. Maria has landed partnerships with some of the biggest companies on earth in her quest to go beyond the bean and farm. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Wow, when you put it in those words, you almost made me cry. (laughs) 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 Well, so it'll be hard for me to get a word in here because as I as I mentioned before we started recording today, Doug is a coffee enthusiast. Yes. I just get to enjoy the benefits of someone who is yeah, as you obsessed got it. as him. You got it good every morning. So I'm going to kick things off and then let him jump in. So something that I think is so cool about Progeny Coffee is that it creates this win-win-win scenario, right? What I mean is that you've created a business where the coffee farmer makes more money, the consumer gets to drink your amazing coffee, and you get to grow your business and help these communities. So how are you making all these win-win-wins happen? Yes. Wow. That's a great question. And that's where we founded Progeny Coffee. 
we are family owned. My husband is my co-founder. And yeah, so we experienced firsthand seeing our family struggle with coffee. I grew up in a coffee farm. My whole family grows coffee. But then living in the US, you kind of pretty quickly you realize, right? You're consuming five dollar cup of coffee. Then you go back home and your family and all the community are just falling into a poverty loop. And so that's where we start questioning ourselves. Is there something like there must be something wrong because you're you know, the coffee has been selling and it's one of the most consumed, it's like the second most consumed beverage in the world. So that doesn't make sense. And so we start analyzing what was happening and we start, we went through a four year journey to really understand the issue, the core issue. And we just realized that there's just so many steps on the way, unnecessary middlemen, or it has been working for like a hundred years and it has not changed or evolved. And the price, the price of the coffee hasn't changed for the farmer for like years and years. Like everything goes up, right? There's an inflation. Absolutely. But the coffee price stays at these lower. And so we decided to redesign the chain and we created a new method where we realized that a big part is education. So we bring free education, technical support to the farmer to bring them to specialty coffee and take them out of commodity. And by eliminating most middlemen, so we go directly, we work with the farmers, we also grow our own coffee, we bring the coffee, we roast it, and we distribute it. That's amazing. So if you could drill down even further, what were some of those core challenges that you came to understand that were specifically facing Colombian coffee farmers? So I think the biggest, the biggest is education. Farmers sometimes are very, they're very far and re- they're in very remote areas. And they don't get an understanding of what the market is. So there's a, a method for commodity coffee, right, that goes to the mass corporations. And so that's how everybody has been for years trained to be. And so you, you grow your coffee, take it to the cooperatives, and, and goes on into the chain. But then the farmer doesn't know any. They just don't understand what is out there or where the coffee goes. That's the process. That's just like yes. habitually what you do. Exactly. So we come with like, hey, you know, there's a world out there. And, you know, we're grateful that I was able to come here and kind of understand like, oh, wow, like it's not just selling to the commodity, but there's, you know, that end consumer. And so I think understanding both worlds allows you to just have that power of knowledge, right? When you don't have knowledge or you don't have the information, sometimes you're in disadvantage. So it sounds to me like you yourself made the perfect disintermediator. If that's a word, Heather, is that a word? <laughs> sure. I think you, you could understand that. Sure, yeah. go with go with it, Doug. Go I'll, with I'm, it. I'm going to go with that. Go with so, it. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is it's not just that you were able to identify the issue here. It's that you yourself, given your knowledge and position, were able to solve that. It's a unique position for you to be in. Yes. And then another big challenge is that the coffee, the coffee price, it, back back in history, it wasn't part of the stock market. Then, you know, I could go in that bin history, but there's a point that I got into the stock market and it goes up and down regardless of the margins of the farmers. So the farmers right now are producing about 15% below margin, which it doesn't make sense because it goes on the stock market. So they pay depending. So what we did is that we took out our price, progeny price from the stock market. So we set our own coffee price uh, structure that doesn't change and minimum doubles the income of the farmer. And goes by score. I don't know if you know that coffee has a score from the Q grade. Yeah, from one to a hundred that right. 85 points and above is considered specialty excellence coffee. 
once the farmer hit 85, they get a, a price. If they get 86, they get higher price, 87. So that way you kind of shift from them producing and then getting whatever price they get for their coffee rather than now knowing how much they're going to be paid where they're able to to plan ahead their production. Right. And that makes sense because if you're going to fix a price to the farmer, you need to remove as much risk from the next step in the process as possible. And it sounds like you're able to do that by ensuring that the coffee that's being produced is super high quality. Yes, exactly. And you mentioned as well that the removal of middlemen was a huge step towards improving the supply chain. And just speaking generally, and because we've seen this come up in other industries as well, and I'm just curious of your thought on this. Like, Is there a time that middlemen are appropriate is there a time that they're necessary and, and is there a time that they're not? It's really hard to know, to be 100% with that intermediary. And there are some that are really key. Like we have our partner in Cafe in Colombia, where is the milling processing center, which we need them, right? But then in a normal chain, there's, you know, the milling center, the cooperative, then the federation, then it goes to the importer, exporter, and so on. So there's just so many steps. I think one of the advantage is that we are from the source, so we're able to navigate our own country and our mountains and our, you know, situation back in Colombia, where I know that it will be really hard for some roasters here in the U.S. that they don't know the place or the land, they're foreigners, right, to just travel to a country and be like, who do we buy? And a lot of these farmers, they don't have bank accounts which is like it's a whole situation to get there, to buy their coffee. So if you are like a roaster here in the U.S., you do need that importer or exporter. Yeah, you're very disconnected from that process. You wouldn't exactly. know. Unless you, right, unless you have relationships, knowledge, and right. Again, that's where you come in here. And in learning about you, I noticed that a key to your success was getting your coffee into huge Silicon Valley companies like Google and Intuit. And... I'm curious, what do you think made Progeny Coffee an appealing partnership for massive companies like this? What was it about what you were bringing to the table that said yes? So one of the biggest things that we, we did is that I'll get to the answer, but farmers, they take three years to grow their coffee, nine months of harvest. A roaster takes 11 minutes to roast a batch of coffee, and it takes five minutes to grow your cup of coffee. In that sense, we're like, well... The farmers should be the face of their own coffee. If they're the ones that take like about three years and then every nine months, right, they're out there. And so we're like, we're never going to do blends. We always keep it original to each coffee. So we create this program for the tech companies where they got to adopt their farmers. So instead of us saying like, hey, here's our blends, we're like, hey, these are the farmers. And then we match you up. Like, okay, how do you like your coffee? What a brilliant strategy. And we had this whole transparency chain where we were able to even bring the farmer to the tech companies. So we had brought uh, farmers to Google or Intuit, Facebook, which was really beautiful, as well as receiving some of their things back at home. So they already need to serve coffee to their employees. And so what better to serve coffee, serve a mission, have your farmer and have that whole traceability. So I think that's what it really got them. So that's a very poignant point because it goes beyond coffee here. And similar to the deals that you've made with major tech companies that help launch the success of your business, 
Do you think individual consumers of really anything in today's world care much more deeply about the moral and ethical practices of the companies they give their money to? Like meaning, do you ultimately spend money in places that also do good by others and align with ideals of your own? Yeah, so we have been seeing that more and more consumers are asking even in-depth questions. So we find our consumers, they just ask us so many questions to really understand. And I think that's where we have had like such a recognition or growth because people just really want to understand where their coffee or their food in general comes from or to be part of a healthy supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn briefly to your the time that you spent raising capital. You had mentioned in an interview that as a Latina woman, you had to work 10 times harder to secure venture capital to fund your business. What's it like being in that room? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, at the beginning we were like, well, I know the statistics, but that's not going to be me. <laughs> You know, that's just the statistics. And then the moment you start like knocking doors, you're like, oh my gosh, yes. The doors, they close much harder and faster for women, especially, you know, women and Latinas. But, you know, after much knocking and and trying and everything, you kind of realize that we have something in advantage, right? And sometimes you try to hide who you are and your identity because you want to blend. (laughs) And you want to fit in. Yes. And then you lose who you are. But the moment, I feel like the moment we start being authentic that, you know, we're not from here. My husband, he's French. I'm Colombian. And and this is who we are. And this is why it is important. I think become a little bit much easier. But it's clear that definitely I need to work 10 times harder and knock more doors. And I just needed to be okay with that. The key was to find people that were aligned with a mission. Absolutely. And you know what? You, you said something that's really interesting to me. And I've I actually had this conversation recently with someone about the early stages of my career as a young lawyer, female lawyer in New York City, where I said, I feel like I spent the first five years trying to be somebody that everybody else wanted me to be. Like I wanted to be, I couldn't just be Heather. I had to be the young female lawyer that that particular boss wanted me to be. And then at my next firm, it was the young person that somebody else wanted me to be. And I couldn't agree with that statement more. Like when you find a level of authenticity and you just say, I am who I am. This is what you get. And putting it out there like that is how you form the best partnerships and you reach a different level of success that like you can feel proud of and you can live with. So I just, you know, more of a comment than a question. Yeah. <laughs> but I that but that point really resonates with me as a woman. How do you think as women that we can fight back against that voice in our heads, that first voice that says, you can't, you should try and be somebody else. What can we do? You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is a great one. And I, you know, I'm still in that, in that journey. I remember when. Sure. We, I think we all are. I think we all are. I remember when we started project, we like, I'm going to be a full-time mom and full-time entrepreneur. And there will be moments that I was just feeling like I didn't got it together like I didn't you know like I'll be a mess because right you're you're arriving with and I think you could relate because you just say you have put your babies to bed that will arrive with a stroller and and you just do what you have to do right like you just do what you have to do and and you say you can't but like then you look around and you say to yourself oh wait I am I'm doing it every day exactly (laughs) 
Yes, exactly. I remember we were in one of the big meetings where we landed one of our biggest contracts and our baby was a toddler and she just wanted my attention and she needed to go potty and she was just crying and pulling. And I was trying here to do this cupping event where they needed to be very sensorial and quiet. Sure. <laughs> and <laughs> eventually it came out right. But yeah, I think that being unapologetic of who we are as women, like Recently, I was pregnant with my second baby and there's that breastfeeding. There is just what you go through as in pregnancy, right? I was going to go doing cuppings and I had nausea. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I love that. Last thing you want to do is like be, you know, slurping and smelling coffee is when you're not feeling your best. I know. I remember walking in and I was like, oh my gosh. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) Pushing through those first few months of pregnancy at any job is just such torture like people really have no idea unless you've been through it like it is truly a daily torture yeah i'll tell you i can't possibly you cannot talk. relate to that <laughs> you, know, you know opening my mouth on this one was was a risk i i can't possibly comprehend what oh, that's like oh you were there too you were there no, too no, you could say i vicariously went through it but it, it doesn't do it justice. he was one of those husbands who like who had like what do they call that wasn't there like a term for that Sympathy. Yes, sympathy pains. Yes. He, he yes. gained sympathy weight. He had sympathy cramps. Yeah, I'm there. The for, whole time. I'm there he for was, you, baby. He, he was definitely that guy. It was so funny. I know. I know. My husband was great also. I would call him. Yeah, I would be at the roster. like, John, I really need you to come right now. And he would just fly <laughs> over. It's like, I just need a rest. <laughs> I hear you. Oh, the struggle is real. So I'm going to pull us into kind of where we find ourselves today a little bit. COVID hit. And for someone who built a business around disruption, I want to know what was this disruption like? What was (laughs) the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself and your business in dealing with obviously a monster of a challenge? And your family too, as a perfect segue from discussing our families and business and then this happened. Yeah, this year has been one to remember. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so as we mentioned, right, our, we have focused strongly for a, a B2B, right? And so that was our model. We we're going B2B. And the reason for that is that we need to move larger amount of coffee to be able to feed our mission, right? We cannot be just a small, cute coffee shop because then, you know, our mission doesn't push forward. And so the moment shelter in place came about for the right reasons, all of our clients needed to close their campuses. And we support that. I mean, we go for, you know, safety, but then we lost about 97% of our revenue in a day. Wow. Wow. That's catastrophic. I, I know. Yes. And we had a, such a great year. We had started strong. And so, yeah, there was a moment of grieving of, okay, it's going to be right. There was that moment that we're like, we didn't know how long it was going to be like, it's going to be a month. Yeah. You go through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, oh my, and then they mentioned, yeah, we're going to open next year in August, like all of them. And we're like, okay, this just happened. Like we just need to reinvent ourselves. Sure. And one of the things we really committed ourselves was to not let anybody go. And so far we have not let anybody go. But quickly we just needed to pivot. I realized that a lot of companies were closing very fast and they were taken by fear and were we're like, we're just gonna need to, you know, dig in our heels and work 10 times harder, and we're going to reinvent ourselves. And so that's where we did everybody's job description shifted, like from the person who was doing sales, doing social media, 
operations, writing blog, like just shifting. So we need to build our whole e-commerce, going to retail, doing really fast, scrappy, because right, the money just started getting tighter and tighter. I hear you. It's definitely has been like a scary and tumultuous time for so many businesses. And But it also speaks to the entrepreneur, the founder, as a business person to be able to not only have the fortitude to keep going, but to know what to do, be nimble enough and transition quickly enough to not let their baby, their business baby, get tossed (laughs) out here. And I love hearing, not just in your story, but even in clients that I work with, how they made sure they weren't going to let their dream disappear simply because of something outside of their control taking place. So I really do think it's a testament to who you are as a business person. Thank you. Yeah, it it was definitely one of the, I mean, lucky that our co-founder, John, he has trained himself in innovation and rapid itineration and all of that. So he took us in that whole trip, like one week, full on training on how to pivot. And at the same time this was happening, we had had our second baby, who she was born premature. So we were in the midst of being a kangaroo family with the company. It was, uh, we're still here. Sure, just throw a baby on in there. It's fine, (laughs) right? Just throw a baby in there. We we have some experience with uh, with that right there. Douglas founded his company the day, what was it? Well, it was on our daughter's first birthday. I, you know, I made the narcissistic decision to found my company. I know, right? And then you're like, why did I do that, right? I could have waited one more day. <laughs> the timing always was like, anytime we had something. Big- it was, you know, to my to, to my credit, I guess credit, it wasn't intentional. It, it was an in the moment thing. And I just like bumped up from Jan 1 to de- December 1st anyways. But yeah, <laughs> anyway, speaking of families, please feel free to correct this tale of events. But as I understand it, both your father and your grandfather encouraged you to leave Colombia and coffee behind. Yet you concluded that coffee was <laughs> part of your destiny. So what did you originally come to America to study? Yes, I was that kind of person that was like, I'm going to do everything but besides what my family is doing. And my grandpa was like, Mija, you need to get out of this. Like every day he would sit me in the ne- like on the edge of his bed and he would just give me the bed dog that I needed to get out. So I wanted to be a fashion designer. <laughs> oh, okay. And I studied design. And luckily, I arrived to New York and I was able to work at Mar Jacobs, Alexander Wack, Maria Cornejo in fashion. Like the career was going great. I loved it. But then it's just that reality, every break, right? We'll go down to drink our cup of coffee with the team. And then my husband, going, I would take him back to Colombia and he'll be like, oh my gosh, your coffee tastes so good. And then we will go back and forth. And like, just that just started just raising that question for us and be like, I think we should do something. Like, this is just not working. And I think we, we're both designers and putting that design thinking, that process kind of pushed us. Sure, like using something that you were inspired by in New York, but also using what you grew up around and organically we're becoming more and more passionate about and molding those two together. Yeah. Yeah. What I like about that, and I see this quite a bit in business, is when you have someone with either a core competency or a training in something that seemingly is completely unrelated to the thing that they're actually very successful at. And only in hindsight do you see, oh my God, my training as a lawyer has made me this amazing business person or 
our ability to be proficient in design has made us some of the best coffee producers in the world. This is not something you put together initially, but I love seeing how things that don't at first glance connect actually make the best connection. For myself, it, I studied public relations and I became a financial advisor. And looking back at that, I couldn't have picked something better to help me in my career. So I love that kind of stuff. And going back to family here, I have to know, and I'm someone who also grew up in a family business, I have to know what your family's reactions were (laughs) when you told them after all of this time they spent with the pep talks, go, you know, leave coffee behind, you know, go do your own thing. And then you said, no, yeah, we're going to actually do coffee. Like what was the reaction there? I come from a really small town really small town and everybody grows coffee. (laughs) I remember my neighbor was, I think he was the president of the Federation of the Coffee. And I called him and he was like, oh yeah, right, right? Like, because everybody knew me of like the one that left and went for design. Yeah, like how dare, how dare you show your face around here again? (laughs) You, you, You left it behind. Oh, what do you know? Like you, you, you know, you wanted to be a designer. But it it actually took a long time for the family to actually come around. And I think my dad still yet can't believe I switched, but on a proud, like he just feels, I think he just feels so proud of my, of my brother and he brought us as a family closer together. I think I have never had such a tight relationship with my dad and my brother than I have now. That's wonderful. What's your brother's involvement? He's the one that runs the whole coffee operations in Colombia. He's the one that does everything with the farmers. Oh, cool. He's boots on the ground. Yes. Yeah. His name is Daniel. Yeah. We just launched a coffee on his honor because he does such a great job there. Oh, that's awesome. That's so wonderful. But I think, yeah. And still my friends, they still can't believe I'm into coffee. (laughs) They are all like, the ones I grew up like how did you get into coffee? Because they all remember I wanted to get out. But it was a big surprise. It took like about two years for everyone to realize that we were having tractions and we were into something for them actually to believe in what we were doing and to the family to kind of jump in on this. Sure, because I think that family too is very, it's natural to be protective, right? Yes. Where they could be happy and excited, but their first reaction is, is this what's best for Maria? <laughs> she went, you know, I mean, it, well, it, <laughs> I think that's a very loving quality is sure. to, you yeah. know, and let me internalize that for a second. Going back to what I had mentioned about being involved in my father's business and growing up in that now kind of flipping the generate instead of looking to our parents and grandparents, thinking to our children for a second, let's push it forward from my experience. And maybe, and I'm curious from your, I'm hesitant to bring my kids in. To, I always say the same thing too. I'm like, Oh, I was always going to say, don't become a lawyer to our girls. You yeah. know, like, oh, don't do that. I, it's, there's something like visceral about it. I don't know. I just, uh, it's my impulse to say, don't do it. Well, for you and I, I think a, a parallel here is that as much as we've had good experience and positive outcomes in the long run here, there have obviously been things in doing the process of becoming a lawyer or becoming a financial advisor that, look, I got some pretty tough memories with my father and the process of doing that. And that's what makes me feel like I don't want, you know, I want to be very cautious here. I don't want my kids to end up with emotional scars that I've created because I was overzealous or overexcited that maybe my progeny, right, would join the business here. So how do you feel about getting your kids involved in the coffee business? Because you you got multi-generational here. I, I just got a father in it. 
yes, that has also come up often between my husband and I, like, are we going to pass on these to our children or they're just going to do whatever? Now, you know, we're designers. I'm sure she's going to become like a doctor or something. <laughs> different. Right. But so from day one, since Bella has been two months, she has been traveled every three months to Colombia with me to the farm. And now every time we arrive to the farm, she's like, oh, coffee tree. Oh, oh that's we're wonderful. the coffee farm. And she has been constantly at the roastery with me. She's always there. And now... Every time she picks a coffee, she smells it. She knows what cupping is. She's five years old. She knows what cupping means. And she really knows what coffee and Oh, we, we need to get her on the East Coast to give our five-year-old a, a lesson in... Uh, yeah, I want her to be cof- friends with... Coffee tasting notes. With, with, our, yes. with Hazel. Yeah, we got to get, get them connected. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And she, every time like a neighbor comes, she's like, we are from Progeny Coffee. You should buy Progeny Coffee. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and so he ha- she has been like our biggest... She's friend. your spokesperson, yeah. She's the number yes. one spokesperson. I love that. Yeah, I remember we were in a doing a demo at a tech company and she will be giving away coffee and she'll Aww. be chasing the people around and she'll be really <laughs> mad if they would not take that cup of she, coffee she oh doesn't take no for an answer i love that she's the coffee fairy yeah yes. i love that <laughs> so we'll see <laughs> all right hazel's got to catch up here yeah seriously all right so if it's okay with you I would like, and I'm sorry, Heather, I'd like to geek out about coffee. Is that cool with you, Maria? Yeah, this is where I bow out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So to give you a little bit of background, coffee is an integral part of my life and business. And over the past couple of years, I've written about how coffee is life and the parallels between the cultivation and brewing of coffee relates to the growth and maturity of human beings. Real far out stuff, I know. (laughs) I've also debunked the latte effect that myth that our national news outlets have been putting out there that millennials and people, if they just stop drinking their five, $6 cups of specialty coffee, they might be able to retire someday. So wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I built a calculator around that just to show people exactly how much money they could save by homebrewing coffee. So big opening coffee question here for you. What does coffee mean or represent to you? What is coffee to you at like that kind of big heady level? For me, coffee means dream. If you go to any coffee farm, you ask the farmer and their dream is to be able to get their their kids to school and to be able to feed their family. So that's what coffee represents to me. Coffee got me through school and got me to where I am right here. That's wonderful. Notice the massive difference between like me tinkering (laughs) with coffee in like my life and practice versus somebody who like literally is DNA is made of coffee. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) So cool. I love it. All right. So here's an easier question now. How do you brew your coffee personally? How do I brew my coffee? I love a Chemex. Me too. But I have two kids. (laughs) (laughs) And so it has switched into a French press. (laughs) There you go. Fair enough. Yes, I know what it's like to have to carve out. Heather will scream from upstairs while getting the girls ready. Where's the coffee? And, you know, every morning he has found a way because he's like, but I'm making the coffee. He comes downstairs and I have to get both girls dressed. (laughs) I have to wrangle them together. And I'm up there. I'm like, it's been like 30 minutes. I'm like, what's happening down there? He's like, I'm making the coffee. I'm dialing the grinder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm also making the lunches and emptying the dishwasher. And all that that's pretty much it. Though. When our toddler, our younger daughter, Ruby, is now like almost two, when she hears the coffee grinding in the morning, she always goes, Daddy. <laughs> there we go. 
Okay. Moving along in our coffee question segment here. <laughs> uh, what types of coffee do you like to drink? Are you a dark roast person, light roast? Break down what is typically in your cup. I like light, medium roast. I really like them bright, very floral, very fruity. <laughs> I just like them to just be able to enjoy and sip. I don't like dark roast. I feel like dark roast just burns out and charcoals everything. And it's an easy way to use bad quality coffee and you just do a dark roast and it comes out, right? Where a medium light roast, it just brings that juiciness and that flavor. So that's why I really like it. I'm on the same page with you there. I almost exclusively avoid dark roast. I think it just masks a lot of the notes and flavors. And I know like people who are not coffee snobs love the dark roast because it you know, tastes like coffee and it like packs the punch that they think is waking them up. But it's really not about that. Oh, I have a really geeky question related to that. So I know there are plenty of Colombian coffees and Latin American coffees that can be fruity, but typically it's your African coffees, your Gujis and Ethiopian coffees that smell like a bowl of candy and obviously taste like that too. So I find it very interesting. You like the fruity side of things. How do you, and this is very, very in the weeds here, how do you find fruity candy flavor like coffees in what you grow? Oh yeah, my guy, that's a great question. Okay, so Colombia has been for years set as a commodity coffee country. And that means that they have quotas with the large corporations, so they always need to get the same cup of coffee across all farmers. So they created these things to do wash coffees, wash process coffees, which you take away kind of like a honey that covers the bean. And so it's completely washed, and that way you just get the same type of coffee. And that's why Colombia has been always known for that chocolatey, but it has been really intentional because that's are the contracts that the Coffee Federation has for in the world. We need to meet some quotas as a country for Nestle and all of these. But in Africa, because they don't have that much water, they do something that's called natural processing, where they dry the fruit with the whole fruit, right, with the whole honey. So that's why it kind of ferments and you get all those fruitiness. And so something that we work with the farmer is that we don't do wash co- fully washed coffees. Let's start doing fermentation. And with that, we almost could reduce like 90% of the use of water and water contamination. And so we start playing with fermentations like Africa does, and we get exactly the same profiles or even better. We One thing that when we were going to start progeny, they're like, oh, you cannot do only Colombian coffee because you only get the chocolatey note. And we have been able to show that, no, Colombia could give you every type of nose. It's just we have been always doing the same that we have been taught for generations. I am so, I mean, again, really dorking out here. That is so cool because- No, it really is. It's almost like, and to your point, like when I get, so every week I get two different types of coffee, usually from all over the place because I just like trying lots and lots of stuff. But every time a Colombian bean shows up, to your point, like I know that note, I'm going to get the chart. Like that's me like, oh, cool. I'm going to get like this really solid, really grounded cup of coffee because that's what I expect out of Colombia. And you're telling me, hey, we're adopting techniques from other parts of the world that bring out other stuff. And now you kind of got like this hybrid situation and something that I guess people would not expect out of a Colombian coffee. I know really, really dorking out here. Last question on the coffee front here. What is your biggest coffee pet peeve and why is it Keurig? <laughs> and why is it Keurig? 
Oh no, ask me again. <laughs> I love that you don't even know what a Keurig is. Oh yes. That is the answer to the question. You, you, I don't <laughs> even, I honestly would prefer you not to answer the question at this particular point because you crushed it. Doug is on like this four year anti Keurig uh, yeah. agenda where like he tweets about how much he hates Keurig. He's like, he's on an anti-Keurig agenda. Yeah. We, we don't, we don't need to get into it, but it's you, you, you did exactly. Yeah. I couldn't have asked for a better answer out of you. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Anyway, Maria, we, we end each episode with the same question. So we have to ask you, what have you lost sleep over lately? I mean, besides a newborn. <laughs> I mean, Fair that's enough. a great, great way to lose sleep. You could go with that, but go on. Yeah. But I lose yeah, sleep on is to make sure we keep our employees and that we are able to people as fast as possible and to be able to keep our mission. We have constantly farmers texting me, hey, our coffee is ready. And we're like, we are pivoting and it's just heartbreaking because you just know that that literally translating to just the basics, like putting food into the table. So that takes away. And Christmas is coming and usually we do this massive party to this really rural area where is the only person they get. And I'm not sure if we're going to get to that this year. So, Well, it's always about the people. And I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. We cannot thank you enough for joining us on We Should Be Sleeping. Before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find you and your amazing coffee. Yes, they can find it in www.progenycoffee.com. That's the best way. We have subscription and we have something really cool where you could adopt the farmer on your subscription. So you don't choose a blend. You actually get to choose a farmer and support that farmer. Love it. Thank you so much again. This was awesome. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. This was really fun to speak with Coffee Geek. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for staying up with us and checking out We Should Be Sleeping. Connect with us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and learn more at we should be sleeping.com. We'll see you next time on We Should Be Sleeping. We should be sleeping.